Let's get into this morning's message. Um, we're going to be discussing now our second of three values. Um, last week we looked at our faith. Uh, faith I consider kind of our, our first value and we, we addressed that a couple messages back. Uh, our three values being faith, community, and mission. Today we're on the second, community. We're going to look at our community how we know and love the church. To give you a brief rundown, kind of what to expect here, I'm going to reintroduce our value of community to us, kind of meditate on that. What does community even mean in the church? And then I'm going to discuss um, two particular passions that flow out of this value, uh, things that we're passionate about here, that I hope we're passionate about here at Mercy Hill. And then uh, from there, we'll discuss briefly our leadership and um, our gatherings as a church. And the notebook actually is going to go again a little bit deeper than I'm able to do with the time allotted to me here this morning. Uh, as I've done in the past, I want to start with a key text. I'm not going to go kind of exegetically, expositionally through this text like I normally would uh, um, on typical Sundays, but I do want to start with uh, the text here in Ephesians 2. The, the key text that's even in your bulletin now that I identified for this value of community is Ephesians 2.19. Um, but I want to read it here in context. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, the ushers are happy to bring you one. If you don't own one or you want to give it away, it's our gift to you. Um, but Ephesians 2, we're going to start in verse 11 and read through verse 19. Ephesians is one of Paul's epistles uh, near the middle of the New Testament there. Let me read it, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and, and dive in. It says this, verse 11. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, let me skip a few words to keep it clear, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm always so worried just reading through a text so quickly. 
I know that oftentimes the the glories and the wonder just kind of pass right through and don't even uh, don't even take root in our minds or our hearts. But what you just spoke to us there, what you inspired Paul to write by the Holy Spirit there is astounding. And what it means for our community of probably all Gentiles is astounding. That we who were far off have been brought near to you through the blood of your Son. God, I pray today that you would set up the cross at the center of this community. I pray you would just drive the cross so deep we can't get it out of the center. It's just there. It's at the center of everything we do, everything we are, every relational uh, exchange. Just the cross that bonds us together. And Jesus, I ask that you would show us what your death, what your resurrection means for us as your people, as a community. I ask that you would give me strength to help me in proclaiming your message, God. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you would say to this church. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. Let me back up from Ephesians 2 for a moment and start at the very beginning. Um, The book of Genesis opens up essentially kind of depicting for us almost like a cosmic symphony where um, God as the conductor is kind of organizing, orienting the whole, bringing the whole universe into being. And there's this sort of refrain, sorry, this thing's kind of tucked up. Uh, There's this sort of refrain that continues to sound out um, after the various days and after the, the different uh, kind of layers in this symphonic arrangement. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? When at the, at the end of what he's doing, he often steps back and he says, this is good. This is good. Six times we read that God kind of looks, you know, steps back, looks at what he's done and, and somehow in a not arrogant and proud way like we would think, but in just this wonderful way where he's celebrating who he is and the overflow of who he is in creation. This is good. God saw that it was good. But all of this, this kind of refrain, just kind of sets up um, this dissonance that we see later in Genesis 2. If you could think about Genesis 1 and 2 like this, it'd be helpful. Genesis 1 is kind of like the uh, the macro mode, uh, as far as like, the, the it's almost like the camera pans out, and you get this big picture of creation, how it happened. Well, well Genesis 2 is kind of like God zooming in the camera and showing us specifically kind of what happened with man. What happened with man and how he created man and woman. And so in Genesis 2, all of a sudden that refrain is threatened. Because God creates Adam from the dust, we read, breathes into him. 
And then he steps back and he doesn't say, aha, I see, this is very good. Instead, he steps back and he says, wait a minute. We're missing something here. <laughs> it is not good that man should be alone. Genesis 2, 18. There's kind of an awkwardness to all of this when you really think about it because we're talking about God. <laughs> You're kind of like, okay, did God like, what is he like me when I forget to read the manual and then I get halfway through and I go, oh shoot, like now I got to figure out how to fix this thing. And shouldn't his omniscience have kind of come into play here and, and why would he have to step back and go, wait a minute, this isn't good. What am I doing? Something needs to change. God knows what he's doing. God hasn't overlooked uh, anything here, I don't think, at all. What he wants to make sure is that we don't overlook the point he's now after. And that, I think, is this. Man needs to be in community. I mean, this is the point of, have you ever wondered how weird the scene is? It, it almost gets even more awkward when God's like, well, shoot, let's bring the animals to Adam and Eve, or I'm sorry, to Adam, and see if those are partners suitable for him. What's going on? It's almost like God is trying to say, look, you are going to need community. I want you to kind of feel the awkwardness, feel the dissonance, so that when I bring Eve, when I bring, uh, you know, a female, the other, your kind of counterpart, You're just going to erupt in song like Adam does. And I'm going to step back and say, it's very good. Like God does. Uh, The last part of of Genesis 1. It's very good. But we need community. And God's trying to get this across to us. As God is in community within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, So we who are created in his image, therefore need to be in community as well. So this is why you read in Genesis, uh, where is it? Probably 1, I think 26, that he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. In other words, because he is a relational communal being, so are we. So are we. But... Into this um, cosmic divine symphony, man introduces a dissonance of his own, right? We introduce in the fall a dissonance of our own, and it doesn't go so well. Uh, When Adam and Eve turn from God, it's as if they take a hammer to the mirror kind of of that image in them, the reflection that they had of God. It's as if when they turn from God, they take a mirror to that hammer, and it, or t- they took a, a hammer to that mirror and it just shatters. It just shatters. And the thing about it is that it doesn't just shatter in the vertical, it shatters in the horizontal. So when men, when men turn from God, they not only fall from God and are exiled from his presence and break community with him, they actually are exiled from one another and break community with one another. So as this happens, Adam's not only now against God, he's also against woman, Eve, which is why he looks and he says, listen, when God comes and asks for them to give an account, he says, the woman you gave me, (laughs) she's the one who gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. 
So as you step, as you break fellowship with God, suddenly there's like breaking fellowship with your fellow man. The vertical and the horizontal are connected here. We shatter that mirror and it breaks in all directions. There's a dividing wall of hostility that's raised between us and God, but also between individuals and also even between nations. That's why we read in Ephesians 2, Gentiles and Jews. (laughs) Things that Jews would just, their skin would start crawling reading that part of Ephesians 2. You mean to tell me that the Gentiles are being brought in? Well, that's because nation is against nation now. Our hearts are so hard. And that community we were created for is broken. Now we live this uh, reality out every day. Right? You experience this every day. It's probably so commonplace you hardly even notice it now. I mean, this is why we lock our doors at night. (laughs) Right? Because I can't trust who's out there. I can't trust my neighbors even. I'm looking at them strangely. What are they doing out there right now? I don't know what, I don't know what they might do if I just kind of let them in my house. This is why we have background checks for ki- people that work in our kids ministry. It's the saddest thing in the world. People come in and might say, I really want to serve with kids. And we have to go, really? How can we be sure? Man's heart's evil. We hurt one another all the time. It's why when you pass, you know, even your neighbors on the street, on the sidewalk, oftentimes you hardly even raise your head to say hello. It's not just because you live in Silicon Valley and everyone's, you know, busy and upset or whatever. This is, this is part of kind of the human condition. That we're broken. That we like don't want to share ourselves fully with one another because we've been wounded and hurt. I don't know if I let you in, what will happen? So we live in this fallen world. We live in this shattered reality. We have these sorts of relationships. We're estranged from family, from neighbor, from nations. Man is alone and it is not good. But, by now you probably know I'm going here. But our God is good. He doesn't let the story in there, right? He doesn't let the story end there. It was our sin that separated us. So what's he going to do? He's going he's to make his son <laughs> to be sin. He's going to make his son carry our sin, suffer under the wrath, do our sin. He's essentially, you guys, going to... It's as if the Trinity is going to break fellowship, break community with itself to let sinners, enemies come on in. Have you thought about that? That's what's going on at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know what's happening there. The Trinity is breaking community so you and I can come back into community with them. That's what Jesus is doing. That's how good our God is. Now, let me... Read Ephesians 2, 13 to 14 for you, because there's something surprising about this redemption. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. God's going after that original problem. But here's what's, here's what's in my mind is one of the most striking features of this text in Ephesians. The reconciliation that God is after, it's kind of like this package deal. Where, yes, is he reconciling us with himself? Absolutely, that's what Jesus is doing there on the cross. Reconciling man to himself. But you know what? He is also, he is also moving in the horizontal here and reconciling us to one another. It is a package deal to be brought near, as, as verse 13 says, to God in the vertical is to have the dividing wall of hostility, as it says there in verse 14, removed in the horizontal. Be brought near to God and the walls are falling in every direction. That's how redemption works. And when you get the former, reconciliation with God, you get the latter. It comes with it, reconciliation with man. But to put it negatively, if all you want is one, you lose them both. You can't have one without the other. You want a great marriage, but you don't want God? You're not going to get it until your hearts get right with the Father who made you. You want God, but you don't want to love your neighbor. You're not going to get it because His love was meant to move through you like a tidal wave onto everyone else in your path. You can't get, you can't have the Father if you won't take the Gentile. And that's what's crazy about what I imagine the Jews would feel at this point as they hear this sort of things. Listen, I want the Father. But I don't want, you serious, the heathen? No, no. And God's like, you don't get it, because you're the heathen too. Now here's where it again becomes so plain, um, that our three values, as I said a couple of weeks ago, are a part of an interconnected ecosystem. You can't have one without the other, and if you try, the whole thing just falls apart. Um, because faith, in other words, that vertical relationship with God, what necessarily follows from that is community and relationship with one another. This is why uh, Ray Ortland here, what he has to say on this, just a quick little one-liner from his book that I gave away a couple weeks ago. Gospel doctrine, he says, creates gospel culture. You hear that? If you're a church that's centered in on the cross, and you see this is how man gets back to God, well, guess what? That is going to start to create a gospel culture. That starts to have effects here, down on the ground, in this room, with this community. You're going to start to look like the gospel. This is why so many times in this church, and I'll continue to say it, uh, I, I said, listen, we want to be a cross-centered and a cross-cultured church. And again, by cross-cultured, I don't mean we're against America. I mean we have a culture that looks like the cross. We're a cruciform community. The love that God has shown us in the gospel is the same kind of love that we start to show one another. And that that ancient Adam and Eve kind of 
push, Cain and Abel kind of, you know, enmity, the walls start to fall down. The walls start to fall down. Now, it gets even more amazing if I could linger here just one more minute with you. Um, because God's ultimate goal, okay, is cosmic reconciliation. His ultimate goal uh, in the gospel is actually to unite all things. This is what we read in Ephesians 1, um, 10. Paul just unleashes, he just comes right out of the gate in Ephesians, just un- unleashing gospel uh, realities, just incredible stuff. And it all is kind of leading to this verse 10 in Ephesians 1, where he says he's doing all this to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So, Everything in heaven, everything on earth, united in the sun. That's where the gospel is going. And here's what I want to say that's so profound to me. That work, that that ultimate goal that God is aiming for of cosmic reconciliation begins with the church. It begins right here in this room now. With just people sitting around you. This is God's... Alpha point, his starting point. This is where he begins. We are, you guys, the nucleus of the new creation. The church is where, uh, well, let me show you. This is why, um, I wonder if you've noticed this. If, if, if heaven and earth are going to be united in Christ and the church is kind of the starting place for this, this is why we read these crazy texts that say like in Romans 8, where Paul was just recently, um, that all of creation is kind of looking into the church. I don't know if you've caught on to that, but it talks about the earth or all creation longing. It's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because our freedom is going to be their freedom. Our redemption is going to be the redemption of the creation. That's what Paul goes on to say. So all of creation, all the earth is kind of looking into the church. When's that going to happen? When's this cosmic reconciliation going to happen? But we also see all of heaven is looking into the church, you guys. This is why we read astounding things like First Peter talks about. Where he says angels are even kind of longing to look into what's going on here. I mean, these beings that if they were to show up in the room, you'd fall on your face or say, man, I've got to peer in to what's going on at Mercy Hill this morning. It's amazing. They're talking about the cross. You wouldn't believe it, guys. Get your, put those wings down and get over here. It's amazing. Heaven and earth looking into the church because we are the nucleus of the new creation. And what starts here, the reconciliation that starts here, is going to ultimately envelop the universe. So, application point, what kind of community then ought we to be? And step back and think about that. I don't want to let down the angels, do you? Although, again, this is nothing unique about this group. Or though all the earth is looking, nothing unique about this group. Let me tell you, if, 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 if Ephesians 2 saying that, that God in the cross and what he did there with his son is not only reconciling us to himself, but his ultimate goal is to reconcile us to one another as well. On a sadder note, I want you to realize that when we kind of turn against this momentum, 
when we kind of turn coldly from our spouse in bed or at the dinner table or at the couch, when we harden our hearts against one another, like, I don't want anything to do with the people on that side of the church. That's why I sit over here. <laughs> when we kind of bicker and, and divide and gossip. Guys, here, here's the crazy thing that I'm picking up from Ephesians 2 and I want us to get. We're not just opposing that other brother or sister. We are actually standing in opposition to Almighty God and what He is trying to do in the gospel. You're not just... Have you ever prayed and thought like God's like on your side when you're really mad at someone? I mean, it might be true at certain points and certain Psalms would lend ourselves to think that. But by and large, I want you to understand God is saying, I wanted you to be reconciled. You want to know what side I'm on? I'm on the side that says move towards. Let's unite. Let's forgive as I have forgiven you. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. And the angels ought to applaud when they look into our church because they see us doing that. God, this is wild. That's not human. That's divine is what that is. How could we drink from the cool streams of His grace and then turn and spit acid on one another? Just think about it. Wow. And yet we do it, don't we? Any married couples in here? You do it. I do it. I'm sure you do it. It's it's hard. Let's get the cross at the center. And I will tell you on a positive note, I'm I'm so stoked uh, at the, the the community that is here already in this church. When you look and and the, the diff- various people that are represented, it's amazing. We have so many different tribes, tongues, peoples, nations represented here in this small little church, and we are reconciled, gathering around the cross, worshiping Him, and I'm just praying that we can go even deeper together. That's my prayer. Now, um, let me get into the passions that kind of flow out of this value of community. Um, I have, uh, first, there in your notes, uh, gospel humility. Gospel humility. Uh, There are few things that I am more passionate about cultivating in this church than this. And all you have to do is ask anyone involved in leadership here. This is the thing that I try to hit on all the time. It's where I started with any sort of training, any conversation. Humility. Because I believe that a church lives or dies at this point. I really do. I believe that where we are with humility will either, will either kill this church or cause it to flourish. We'll either bicker, bite, divide over silly things like the color of a whatever curtain or We'll be ready to humble ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. If we got that, my goodness, so many other things can go wrong. But if you have humility, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Bonhoeffer, in Life Together, uh, he quotes from Luke's Gospel, and then he proceeds with a warning for the church. Let me read you this. He's quoting from Luke 9.46 here. There arose a reasoning, or an argument, among them, which of them should be the greatest? Remember that scene in the, with the disciples? Which of us is the greatest, man? We're awesome. <laughs> Bonhoeffer quotes that and he says, listen, we know who it is that sows this thought in the Christian community. 
But perhaps we do not bear in mind enough that no Christian community ever comes together without this thought immediately emerging as a seed of discord. Thus, at the very beginning of Christian fellowship, there is engendered an invisible, often unconscious, life and death contest. There arose a reasoning among them. This is enough to destroy a fellowship. Hence, it is vitally necessary that every Christian community from the very outset face this dangerous enemy squarely and eradicate it. There's no time to lose here for from the first moment, put yourself here, do you do this? When a man meets another person, he's looking for a strategic position he can assume and hold over against that person. It can occur in the most polite or even pious environment. Think about it at prayer meetings. i got to have the best prayer. I'm going to quote the most scripture in this prayer. They're going to be amazed. Do that. I'm going to show myself to be the greater one here. It is the struggle of the natural man for self-justification. He finds it only in comparing himself with others, in condemning and judging others. So, what are we to do with that? Bonhoeffer is saying the moment a Christian community starts to gather, that sort of pride that threatens the community, the very existence of that Christian community, is present. It's ready to sow the seed of discord. So what in the world do you do with that? How does the church, like he says, face this dangerous enemy squarely and eradicate it? Answer, simply put, but not so simply executed, gospel humility. Gospel humility. Let me flesh this out by reading to you a quote that I came across from Greg Gilbert. Um, Why do I call it gospel humility and how does that lead to our unity as a community? This is what he says. Unity lives where self-regard dies. And self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. I wonder if you heard it. We will be united, community, only where self-regard dies. Humility. And self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. Gospel humility, therefore, is what enables our community. I want to walk back up his thought for a minute. He says that uh, at the foot of the cross, that's where self-regard dies. Think about this with me for a moment. Self-regard or pride uh, kind of works in two different directions. Perhaps I've said this before, but uh, it's worth recounting. Because we often forget. We think of pride as kind of the positive charge. We, we think of it as, uh, on the one side, the, um, the person that has high self-regard for, them, for themselves, Right? I think highly of myself, like, I'm great, and everyone should think I'm great too. That's what we typically think of as self-regard or pride. But it can work in the opposite direction as well. It can be where we actually have low regard for ourselves. Like, aren't I horrible? Can I just tell you how I screwed up, or I just can't stop thinking about myself? How bad I am. You see, both... Both situations on either extreme are orbiting around self. That's the thing they have. They just keep regarding self. It's just focused here and we can't get out. 
this is a sobering thought. I think it's true, and hear me say it, but hopefully in a gracious way, because I deal with this myself. I'm probably the I, I oscillate from both extremes, to be honest with you. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, if we still have regard for self after gazing upon the cross of Christ, we either have not yet seen the cross for what it truly is, or we have strayed dangerously far from it and are in desperate need of returning back to it. I don't say that to just rebuke us, because like I said, this is a moment-by-moment thing where it comes in, you're thinking, what are they thinking about me? Oh, I blew it. Oh, I was awesome. It's like, it's going on. But this regard for self is saying, somehow the cross is getting dim, Nick, in your eyes, because I'll tell you something, the cross leaves no place for self-regard. Self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. It will not let me have self-regard on either side of the balance. Think with me. Think with me about this. This is amazing. The cross will not let me think too high of myself. Regard myself highly. I mean, I, there's no, this one's easy. There's no way for you to look upon the sun and go, oh, all right. I'm like, I'm great. I've got it going on. You look there and you realize I am a horror. I am or like when my sin was put on the sun, that's what happened. That's what had to happen so that God could like look upon me again. You hearing me on that? I just read, I'm in Isaiah and I just read the end of Isaiah 52. You guys, it's insane. You read it and, and, and it says that he basically you know, prophesying what would happen to Jesus on the cross. He was, he was like marred beyond human semblance, is what it says. He didn't even look like a person anymore on the cross. That's how, that's how brutal the wrath of God was against him. And when we, when we realize later, hey, that's my iniquity. The shepherd became the sheep. That's my iniquity on him. That's what I deserve. He got, there's just no way for a high self-regard to exist in that kind of space. If you're right there by that kind of cross, seeing what he's doing. No way. But, but, don't miss the other side. Some of us have more of the depressive personality and we're prone to that low regard for self. The cross moves in the other direction too. That's what's so awesome. It says, not only are you a horror, <laughs> Because if God were to even come close to you, Jesus, his son, his beloved son, would have to die. He says, you actually are a treasure. That's what the cross says. That the son didn't have to come. He actually chose to do this because the father loves you. Because he values you. Because you're a treasure to him. And he rejoices over one sinner that repents. And when the prodigal son returns, he just throws a feast. Because he loves you, you see. So the cross says, man, you are so valuable to me. Don't you go all low and start thinking all about this and how you screwed everything up. Listen, I got that. I'm on you. And what the work I begin, I'm going to complete like we looked at last week. Let's start regarding Christ. Let's stop with all this orbiting around self and come start looking at him. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one is more lovable than another there. No one is is more loathsome than another there. All of our goodness 
can't endear us to him and all of our badness can't disqualify us. That's the amazing thing about the cross. The only thing that matters is where you stand in relation to Jesus. And that's why self-regard dies there. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. But we're still walking up uh, Gilbert's thought for a moment. As self-regard dies, unity lives. He says, unity lives where self-regard dies, and self-regard dies at the foot of the cross. Well, foot of the cross, we see how self-regard dies. I want to see how that leads to unity. Because as self-regard dies, here's what we find. True community actually starts to come alive. It's as if like the death of my pride is kind of like the compost that you put in your garden. actually nourishes the root of our Christian fellowship. Let it die, man. And the best stuff's going to come alive in the death of my self-regard. What happens when a community has lost regard for self? They can finally have regard for one another. Which is why Bonhoeffer comes out in the conclusion of his thought and he says this. Self-justification and judging others go together. Just as justification by grace and serving others go together. Did you hear that? If it's all about me orbiting around me, then I need to manipulate you. To, you know, get one up you, climb on your shoulders to get to the top. I'm going to judge you, throw you down so I can be great. But if I have received my justification by grace at the foot of the cross, I'm going, no way, it's coming to a sinner like me. Then this is like what Paul would say in Romans. Suddenly you become indebted to everyone else. You just feel like, I owe you love now. I owe you grace now. I'm just indebted because I my bank account overnight went from negative you know, billions to positive in the opposite direction. It's amazing. It's amazing. Gilbert's flow of thought really just follows the Apostle Paul's in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. I don't think I have time to read it here, but it's in your notes. But it basically, Paul's saying, listen, unity, one mind in the church, I want you to have it. It's going to happen when when you guys uh, get low, when you get humble. And here's how you get humble. You put your eyes on the Son who came down from heaven, stepped lower in the incarnation, stepped lower in the crucifixion, came after you that way. So community is going to be, it's going to, it's, it's going to live or die with gospel humility. Now, second passion that... I wanted to make note of um, every member ministry is how I would sum it up. Every member ministry. Now, let me connect the previous passion to this one. We, we must not think that because we are all humbled by the cross of Christ, that we are all therefore irrelevant to the mission of Christ. Did you hear me on, on that one? That... Um, just because you're humble and, and, and broken and nothing and we can't do this thing, it's all Jesus, doesn't mean that you're now irrelevant to the mission of Jesus. In fact, it's the exact opposite. 
That's what's so great about the gospel. He actually humbles us so that he can finally use us. As long as we think we're of great use to the kingdom, we can be of very little use. But the moment he humbles us, we actually start to stop fighting back, you know, with the one who's directing us. And he can actually, we can be his instruments. We stop talking back to the potter and, and he makes an amazing thing out of the clay. He humbles us so that he can use us. When we come under Christ, it's not like we're sitting ourselves down on the bench, like, I guess I'll come out. Jesus, it's all about you. No. I mean, we do that, but what actually is happening is then we actually get thrown in the game. We finally start to play, not just in our minds, but in reality. With Christ as our head, we become a member of his body. And in his body, every member plays a vital part so far from being irrelevant to the mission you're vital to it every single person every member ministry this community is knit together like a body this is paul's great burden in a text maybe some of you background in church are familiar with uh, i want to read it anyways first corinthians 12 this is uh i'm going to read verses four through seven and then skip down to where he jumps into the the uh, image of the body verses 14 to 20 just, you can just listen. There are varieties of gifts, Paul says, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each, every member is given some manifestation of the Spirit, but not just for that member, but for the whole. This is why he jumps into the body here. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would make it, or I'm sorry, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't let us kind of exalt ourselves one over the other. He doesn't let us get, you know, depreciate the value of one over the other. He says every single member is needed if this thing's going to function right. I'll give you an analogy from stuff I see going down in the gyms these days. Uh, you know, you have those those dudes who, um, you know, they're working out, but for some reason every day is biceps day. You, you guys know, you, you guys might not go to the gym. I don't know. When I went, I, there were these guys where every day was biceps day because we had to face it. Uh, the girls, they don't dig the calves. You know, they're not into big calves. They like the big biceps. So the guys, every day, that's what we're doing. We're all, we're doing this. And that's fine for like a week or a month, but after years go by or whatever, the guys start to look ridiculous, right? They have, they have these big like tree trunk arms and then these tiny little twig legs. And so it's like, if, if you ever got in a fight with this dude, you'd, you'd, at first you'd be intimidated, then you'd realize you just kick the shins and he topples over and we're all right. Okay. Now think with me here. This is how people view the church a lot of times. Like if the church is a body, well, the heavy lifting is supposed to be done by a few. And there are 
different reasons why we might think this way. Uh, i just give you a, a, a few of them. Some people might think they're the bicep. They're kind of, they got the pride thing going on and they think, man, I got this. It's me. It's me again. It's me again. I got that ministry. I got that ministry. Let me do that. I can handle that. I can be prone to this, especially as the pastor of this church, doing too much and thinking that I'm, you know, every day's biceps day. It's not. But others might move in the opposite direction where maybe they're lazy, like they're not the bicep and they're just fine. Like, I like being the calf. I like not having to stress or strain. Let me sit back and just veg here. Give me, pass out some popcorn and we're good. I like the service. Wonderful. Let me go home. Let me go home. Other people might desperately want to be in the mission, but feel like they're just going to screw it up. Like, leave it to the professional. Leave it to the guy who went to seminary. I'm just going to blow it. If I try to take it into my own hands, they feel broken. They feel depressed. They feel useless. So that's why every day is bicep because I'm no good. Whatever the case may be, when we treat the body of Christ that way, when we allow that sort of culture to develop, the body of Christ gets disproportional, disfigured. It looks maybe strong from certain angles, but it's weak in a fundamental way. The work of a pastor, um, you guys hopefully probably know, but Ephesians 4 lays it out quite clearly. It's not to do all the heavy lifting. It's to equip the church to lift together, right? To equip the church to lift together. This is Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He gave, he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Did you hear that? My job is to equip. Not to entertain or do all the work, but to equip so that we would be on mission together, that every member would have a ministry and be functioning in a vital way. And it's only as every member is playing a vital role that the body as a whole is made strong, which is why it's incredible where Paul goes from here in verse 13. He starts, or I'm sorry, verse 14. He starts to talk about how when the church is doing this, the, the pastors and, and teachers are, are, are quipping and the, the saints are doing the work of the ministry. When that happens, we stop being, verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, we don't have those little, those little twig calves anymore that Satan can just come and, and give a little, give a little tap and we fall over because every member is involved. So we're strong and we grow up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. Together, every member is needed for that. Every member is needed for that. So, this is a call. It's a call for the proud, like like I'm prone to be, to step back and let other people do some stuff. (laughs) Let other people do the work of the ministry. It's a call for the lazy. Man, let's go. Recognize me. We're not, we're not called to be spectators. We're called to be soldiers. And this church needs you. You understand? We, we need you to be vitally connected here. And God wants to move through you in powerful ways, ways you would never imagine.
And it's a call for the, the depressed and the broken, those who feel like they're good for nothing, to realize that, that the Spirit of Christ is in you. And He hasn't given you a spirit of fear. And this is what Paul was kind of encouraging Timothy, right? Like, Timothy, stir up that gift, bro. Don't let it go to waste. You, this church needs you. God's not giving you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love, self-control. So He's in you. You can do this thing. This is a call for every member ministry. So if you have ideas, if you have passions, if you have, talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. I mean, it's one of my greatest passions to help your ministries, your passions flourish. Because I believe the greatest stuff probably that will come from this church is actually going to come from your heart, not mine. I like doing the Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. I like scattering the seed, equipping you, and then watching what you do with the strength that God supplies. All right. Um, I have to think about how to handle this. Uh, let me let me just cover the, the the initial basics of our leadership here, so you can see how it connects. But um, perhaps that could be your homework if you want. You could read through that in the notebook. Um, I am. I want to show you a little bit about our leadership and how it fits in with this community and every member ministry and things. With our presuppositions of gospel humility and every member ministry, uh, it should be clear now. Uh, how we should handle our leadership. Leadership in this church does not uh, in any way indicate the, that this person is more worthy or something. Because we just covered the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And leadership doesn't mean that this person is more important. Because we just covered every member is important and vital to the body. It needs to be going. But... Nonetheless, God, because he cares for the church, provides her with structure, authority, and leadership. It's not to kind of quench what's going on in the church. It's actually to help support, strengthen, and encourage it. Uh, one way you might, this might be helpful uh, for you know, memory's sake, but God cares not only for ardor or the use of the gifts, passion, uh, passionately pursuing, exercising the gifts. God cares not only for ardor in the church, He cares also for order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 That those gifts and that our, our skills and things He's given us be used in a proper way for the building up of the body. Not just ardor, but order. Or another uh, little couplet for you, God cares not only for the organism, in other words, he cares that every member of the body be uh, be working properly. He cares for the organism, but he also cares for the organization of the church. Namely, he wants there to be a skeletal structure. Think about your body without skeleton. Skeletons are creepy. It's Halloween. I don't like them. But nonetheless, we really need them. You take out my skeleton, I fall to the ground. I, I, who cares if I've got hands and I, they're not working right? So he puts almost like skeletal structure into the body of Christ's leadership. Not just organism, but organization. And he does all of this, therefore, for the sake of the church. It's, it's, it's order for the sake of order. It's organization for the sake of the organism. And it's leadership for the sake of the membership.
I'll leave you there, but we have elders and deacons in this church. Put a period at the end of that sentence, and uh, you can read more to find out what that means. I want to end by looking at our gatherings, and in particular, for the sake of time, just looking at the Sunday service for a moment. Looking at our gatherings, how we come together as a community around the cross, our gatherings. Um, before I jump into the Sunday service, I just would direct you to the appendix. I think it's eight or maybe nine. I can't remember. Um, but the 2020 vision that I've given here before, it's there. You can read it. Essentially, it comes from Acts 2020, uh, where Paul says, hey, listen, I ministered in large groups. Essentially, I was in the temple with you guys, and, and, and I'm also from house to house. In other words, 2020 vision says if we want to see and show Jesus clearly with 2020 vision, then we need to be in community with one another in both large gatherings and small groups. The largest gathering that we have is the Sunday service, so consider that with me here. And you can read about some of our small groups in the notebook if you want. Uh, the Sunday service. Initially, it, it seems that the early Christians gathered um, formally for worship on the last day of the week, the Sabbath. This is because they were coming out of the Jewish religion. So they would actually go with the Jews still to uh, the temple or the synagogue. This is where kind of the early Christians were going. They're like, he's a Jewish Messiah. He's your Messiah. We're still in this Judaism thing on the Sabbath, but as it became clear that uh, the Jews were not going to have it, the the uh, this group started to become differentiated as Christians, and they started worshiping on not the last day of the week, but the first day of the week, the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the day um, appropriately called the Lord's Day in Revelation and other places. But it's it's amazing because, guys, it's as if Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week initiates a new creation. Kind of like God started on day one. Well, Jesus and the new creation starting on day one, rising up from the dead. Let's start this thing over. Let's redeem. Let's regain. Let's move towards new creation. So he raises up from the dead, starts this kind of new creation, a new humanity, and they have a new day of worship. The first day of the week. Now, I think people are prone to downplay or, or neglect the Sunday gatherings because they don't quite get exactly what's going on here. And I wanted to spend the last bit of our time just reflecting on that with you. Uh, for some, I, I imagine it's just another event in their calendar, right? It's, hey, uh, I'll, I'll go to church unless something better comes up, and then there's always next week. It's like that, that little preacher guy, he's always talking about the same thing. And we're always going to get to the cross. He's going to say the gospel. I'm not going to miss much. I'll come back the next week. No big deal. You know, we're going to sing about the same kind of songs. So what's the big deal? Why the Sunday service? Why the gathering? I think we're prone to feel that way. Maybe some of you do. The author of Hebrews comes in to help us at this point in a big way. Hebrews 10 is specifically where I'm going, but let me, let me, uh, um, slowly move into our text, which is going to be verses 19 to 24. I want to show you kind of where he's come in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 begins with a discussion of Christ's high priestly ministry. Okay. That he offered once for all 
the, the sacrifice for our sins. Our sins is over. He's the high priest of high priests. But then it moves on in verses 15 to 18 to talk about the new covenant Christ has made with us in his blood. So what he did on the cross, then he makes a covenant with us. And now in verses 19 to 25, he starts to say, okay, covenant community, this is what that means for you. Let me start drawing out some implications from his priestly ministry and this new covenant he's made. What does that mean for you as a people when you come together? Let me read this to you. Starting in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. In light of Christ's work, There are three let us's that kind of come out. Three things we ought to do when we meet together as church. Three things that we want to see in this community, and in particular, in the Sunday service. Let me just bring them out for you, and we'll close. First, one of you saw the first... If it helps you remember, people call this the lettuce patch of the New Testament. That's kind of silly, kind of cheesy, but here you go. Three lettuces. First, when we meet together, let us draw near to God. Verse 22. I wonder if you understand how significant that is. I mean, for the Jew, for the Hebrew, this would have been amazing. I mean, that was for, you know, the high priest one day, you know, whatever, go into the holy holies. Are you kidding me? We're rushing the throne and we're not finding death there. We're finding grace. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Let us draw near to God. Coming together is ultimately about coming in to God's presence as a community. Second, what you see there in verse 23, when we meet together, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why do we preach? Why do we talk about the same gospel every week? Why do we do that? Because as I've heard, you know, vision and, 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 and we kind of leak the stuff that was said last week. It's out of us now. And we're kind of living like the world and we need someone to come back and say, you are loved freely by the grace of Christ. He's grabbed a hold of you. There's an anchor in your heart by his spirit and he's taken you to glory. You need to hear that. We help one another hold fast to the confession of our hope. We help one another hold tightly to the one who's holding tightly to us. Third, when we meet together, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're not just moving vertical, right? That's what we've just been dealing with almost this whole time. Now we're seeing how can we get love in our lives? How can we get good works in this church? How can we move deep into community and out into mission? So we get together and we stir one another up because we go cold. We go cold. 
You spend all day in the office, and I don't care how holy you are, it gets hard. You spend all day with, 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 with your kids or whatever, and you start to lose sight of the bigger picture. It's hard. And so we come together, and we stir one another up. We blow on the embers of that flame together. And that's why I think he closes with this final plea there in verse 25. Do not neglect to meet together, he says, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet. Come together as a community. He's saying you're going to need that if you're going to make it to the day. These days help us in our sojourn on our way to the day. Does that make sense? Everyone else is living for the here and now. What you'll get from the TV, what you'll get from the office, what you'll get from the world, the flesh, the devil, here and now. Eat, drink, be merry. Live it up. But we come in this church and we say, wait a minute, man. Wait a minute. Let's not lose perspective. Let's rush the throne. And find grace. Let's hold fast to our confession and the hope that comes, even through suffering. Let's stir one another up. The love and good works. Let's not forsake to gather because these gatherings on these days is what's going to be pivotal, critical in getting us to that day. It is not good that man should be alone. But behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. Let's pray. God, thank you for the work that you have done. We've made all the mess and we could clean up none of it. (laughs) We're responsible for all the mess, God, in our relationships with you, with others within ourselves. And you're the one that comes and cleans it all up. All glory to you, Lord. Please, again, I plead with you. Drive your cross like a stake deep down into the center of this church. I pray with all my heart, God, that we would not, we would not be able to drink from the streams of your grace and turn and spit acid on one another. I pray with all my heart we wouldn't forsake gathering. We wouldn't turn from one another. We wouldn't think we got this. We would press in and be your body in all its multifaceted glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.